This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Camera Aslan, today on A Bit of Culture, we're doing something slightly different. Once in a while, we're going to do uh, shows on A Bit of Culture where we're going to go a bit more in depth and on a subject and do uh, a one-on-one talk with somebody who's a specialist in a particular field uh, who can shed light on that field. And so today, we're going to be speaking to two different Malaysian historians, uh, professional historians, who uh, their history telling isn't necessarily about hi- uh, Malaysia per se, but they are looking, I think they, well, they've grown from here, so their eyes are always going to be looking for a, a Malaysian angle. So today we're going to start with, uh, he's actually a very good friend of mine, <laughs> he is Professor Sumit K. Mandal, and he is the Associate Professor at the School of Politics and History and international relations at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. And he recently put out a book, which is a really good book. It's called Becoming Arab, and it won the Henry J. Bender Prize from the Association of Asian Studies in uh, the U.S. I think, I think I'm right in saying, Sumit, you are only the second Malaysian to win this prize? No, I think there have been a few. Uh, there have been, been more than a couple Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but, but a handful, yeah. Right, but it is very prestigious. I <laughs> <laughs> want to stress that. And uh, so today I'd like to, to talk with Sumit about the book, but also about the art of history telling and what it is that he is searching for in, in his research and in, in, in the subjects that he chooses. Because the first subject we're going to talk about today from the book Becoming Arab, if I can characterize this quickly, is looking at the history of the Hadrami Yemeni community in Southeast Asia, principally in modern-day Indonesia, but also with mention to Penang, Malacca, and Singapore. Uh, Sumit, have I... Have I uh, put, uh, is that right? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and so if you could give us a brief outline of, of the history um, of these people, and then we're going to talk, I'd really like to talk about why you chose this subject. Okay. Well, um, what makes them of interest to me is they've had this long connection to this part of the world. So um, perhaps um, more than just the 500 years that we know, about, about which we have kind of a, a fairly strong record, probably going back further back. But even if we just took a half a millennium, a millennium uh, it's a long period of time during which they've had interactions with this part of the world, a world I like to call the Malay world, in order to, it's not a very good uh, term to use, but it's useful because it's not really Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore. It's something that pre, pre-existed these nation states. So there's been this long-term contact and interaction uh, with this part of the world from which we have evidence of um, uh, communities that uh, are Peranakan, we might call them Peranakan in Malay, or say Creole as a, as a rough translation. And and uh, these Creole communities represent to me a way of thinking about uh, belonging in multiple places that uh, pre-exists the kind of demands made on, on us as individuals, as citizens, 
with the making of nation states because the tendency is loyalty to one place, one uh, idea of nation, one language. And these kinds of issues continue to uh, uh, define the way our politics is, is wor politics works in uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and, and so forth. So you have this long-standing community with a history of interaction that produces uh, a very interesting outcome, a different way of understanding how one can belong to one place and relate to other homelands, other contexts. And then with the rise of nation states, you have forms of racialization, forms of narrowing. So what I try to do in the book is look at how this narrowing ends up uh, affecting the, that longer term history. Now, in many works of history, the idea is that that narrowing is, uh, has a very uh, powerful consequence and it eliminates all earlier histories. What I try to do in the, my book is say, well, the kinds of consequences that are brought about through racialization and so on are serious. You need to look at them. The categories that are introduced and supported by states are, are, can be quite rigid, have very strong, uh, powerful consequences. But what I try to argue in the book and I show, uh, for which I also show evidence, is that these older histories continue to have some kind of uh, say. Um, they might they become marginalized, but the they are not erased, and that that might seem like a nuance, but it matters that there's still a voice out there uh, for a kind of way of belonging and interacting in the world that's not defined entirely by race. Basumi, you've just gone uh, in five minutes. You've gone through essentially over five hundred years of history. You've gone from uh, long pre-colonial history through, you mentioned sort of colonial history and now the, the modern day nation state. Can I just jump us back to that, that early point, just, sure. to, just to set the stage. We're talking about um, men, Hadrami, Yemeni. Do I, do I say Hadrami or Yemeni? Well, it's, uh, to, be, to be historically accurate, they would have been Hadrami because they came from a valley in, in what is today Yemen, uh, called the Hadramaut. So they're almost all from there. So these were men, prince, almost entirely men. I think there were very few women who came from there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm taking this from your book. <laughs> and uh, would have been, would have traveled here as traders, uh, bringing goods from the, the Middle East, those kind of goods being uh, well, there could be horses, for instance. Um, they could be. What kind of trade goods are we talking about that they would have? Well, um, they wouldn't have been trading so much uh, in live animals and so on across such long distances. So usually, what happens in the kinds of uh, pre-modern maritime trade in the Indian Ocean is people are. Are very well traveled, so they do suddenly make this huge journey all the way from uh, the Hadramaut to, say, uh, Malacca. But they do so in multiple steps. And so the kind of trading tends to um, occur along the types of goods that can be supplied and demands within particular sectors. And uh, usually say what I know about 
something like animals is they would go say from this part of the world to India. So um, Sumatra supplied elephants to the Mughal courts in India. We know that. So we wouldn't have that, but you, you would have had some degree of say, uh, um, also goods from India that are being brought by uh, Arab traders. It could have included textiles. Um, what came from the Middle East itself uh, could have been um, very uh, fragrant oils, uh, particular kinds of, of um, oils that are very distinctive to uh, the area around Yemen. But actually, most of these people came and traded in the Malay world. Right. Right. right? So they so became very important. Uh, they became, they formed important networks of seafaring traders within the Malay world. And then, uh, because of the nature of the trade winds, they would have stayed at least for six months or so, or maybe permanently then, in uh, a number of uh, port cities. The, the port cities you really looked at were, were in uh, present-day Indonesia. And then they would have married with local women. I, what do I mean by local women? They would have been Javanese in the Javanese-speaking areas. They would have been um, Buginese in Sulawesi, right? And, but broadly speaking, uh, we use the term Malay world, or Malay, because most of the time, Malay was a lingua franca that brought all these people together. But uh, they would have um, married people from the particular localities in which they were settled in. And then, in coming to the title, really, of your book, Becoming Arab, uh, these communities created... Did, I mean, can we say they created an identity, uh, a community, uh, imagined their own community? Because, you know, this is, this is now a, a hybrid uh, family of uh, Hadrami and Javanese, say. But, mm -hmm. but, but, but across the Southeast Asian uh, maritime network, you have an Arab identity forming. Uh, no, the kind of claim that I make is is rather specific to the to the when it comes to the question of becoming Arab, very specific to the structures that are governing them. So I look at Java and the structures that the Dutch colonial state uh, create to govern them. So the process of identity making there isn't uh, one way. So you have Dutch structures that come along and say, well. This is the new order of things. We're going to have Europeans uh, at the top. Then we have this category of uh, foreign Orientals, which would be Arabs, Chinese, Indians. And then this large uh, uh, umbrella category called natives. So um, when these, uh, these categories were created, they were not academic. They became, um, they were implemented by uh, carving out residential areas, uh, controlling travel according to the, the racial um, group that you, you know, category within which you fell. And so inevitably that created a degree of uh, concentration of Arabs in a particular area. But as always, you know, with these efforts, uh, um, the Dutch had a hard time controlling the movement of uh, Arabs, controlling them from spilling over from others coming into their areas because they've always been so interactive and so mixed. But 
these uh, kinds of categories in, 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 ultimately do have an impact. And so there's a, a kind of an impact coming in from state controls. But then what happens within these communities is they start to organize themselves and their needs and appeals to the state along racialized lines, right? And so you have this complex process that ends up uh, consolidating an idea of identity, of Arabness, a more curtailed, um, a narrow definition of Arabness uh, within these communities. When they come into contact with the colonial authorities, they must appeal to them as an Arab. That's the identity that's imposed upon them, and they cannot speak as simply, well, as a citizen, obviously. They, they tended to have to do that. But one thing we, we should remember, though, whenever we look at the colonial period is, uh, perhaps any period in any form of politics, is that nothing is fixed in stone, and these are projects. So it's always negotiations and, and, and uh, ways by which uh, the, 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 there are exceptions to the norm. But yeah, generally speaking, you, you would speak through your designated headman, and the headman had sort of uh, military titles like captain, major, and so on, like in the British colonies sometimes. So you as a community had to abide by norms that were tended to be racialized. Can I just jump sideways then with that? You mentioned uh, the, the British uh, colonies. Malaysia is made up of very different parts, but they all have the one connecting thread is uh, a British connection. The authorities at some point were some form of British. Uh, and I know your, your field of study has been very much with the Dutch in the Dutch East Indies, but can the same arguments about identity politics be made are they exactly the same, be it for the Dutch and for the British, or are there differences that we've inherited in Malaysia differently from Indonesians? No, I think that there are differences. There's always broad similarities. The broad similarity would be the emphasis on racialized identity, right, by the end of the 19th century, that this kind of, and the notion of European superiority, again, not a given at all times, but something that is uh, becomes very prominent and very well developed in the end of the 19th century. So uh, that would be something shared across the two colonies. But, you know, um, the, the Dutch state attempted to, uh, the Dutch colonial state attempted to create a much more uh, uh, co colony-wide uh, bureaucratic establishment and a kind of uh, colonial civil service that tried to apply uh, a fairly homogeneous set of rules across a, a territory. Whereas in British Malaya, um, there was, of course, an overall British rule and so on, but it was devolved to states in, in, um, in, in many respects. So the laws governing uh, the way in which one was understood to be Arab or treated as Arab in Kedah was different from Johor. You know, and some of the kind of local practices within the sultanates would have uh, played a role. So that's why I, we, we can't assume that the, the case that I used in Java uh, translates easily and perfectly into uh, the Malay Peninsula, for instance. Um, 
and which is why I insisted on talking about the Dutch and Java earlier. So in each instance, you would want to look at um, uh, British, the British in the federated and unfederated Malay states, how each of the states developed um, their, their laws, uh, because laws were even then as they are now frequently devolved to the level of the state. I wouldn't even assume that because they were all of British origin that the impact was the same. Because we're talking about the kinds of things we're talking about really rest on the actual workings of the structures of power in each of these places. Uh, Sumit, I could obviously carry on talking about uh, history for, for hours and hours, but we're, we're running, <laughs> this is very short, we're running out of time now. Um, we've got a, just a few minutes left. Uh, I'd like to ask you very quickly uh, about, you mentioned earlier about what, what you're looking for. Could you just expand a little bit on what, it is, what is the history telling that you're looking for? Well, I suppose for me, I've been very interested in trying to understand um, the very many things that have come to constitute us as a people. And us could be any number of uh, people. I think it's a question that applies to anyone in any part of the world today who is interested in understanding the place of um, the, 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 the diverse sources that have come to constitute our individual societal, national, regional identities. Uh, these are things that have been uh, suppressed in particular by nation states who insist on a singular sense of belonging. Right? And, uh, and perhaps that is something that comes from, uh, you know, being born in a family of, of a, a family of a migrant to, to Malaya and knowing that, um, you know, my parents came from India, um, knowing that they had this very strong connection to India and I was growing up in, in Malaysia and, uh, you know, socialized into thinking that this is the one place that I belong to. But the kinds of research and thinking that I found myself maturing into as I grew older was constantly looking at uh, all these other places as well and trying to understand how they fit into the making of my Malaysian identity, for instance. Well, uh, wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. I'm going to give you now 30 seconds though, to give me uh, a recommendation of a book that's uh, perhaps foundational in, in your way of seeing. Well, I, I really like the book Crossing the Bay of Bengal. Mm. Mm. Um, it's uh, by Sunil S. Amrit. And uh, he's a professor at Yale University now, a fellow historian. And it's just um, a brilliant book that looks at how the Bay of Bengal as a body of water um, has not just been a means by which people in India and the Malay world have been connected, but it's also really shaped a shared culture um, to the extent that somebody in Southern India would feel comfortable, um, you know, arriving in Penang because uh, they have connections that are familial, connections that are cultural. Uh, they share what he calls the Bay of Bengal imaginary. Wonderful. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Sumit K. Mandal. And, uh, and I would recommend that everybody have a look at his book, read his book, Becoming Arab. Uh, 
and well th thank you so much thank you very much and in a moment, we'll be speaking to another historian who Sumit actually knows quite well uh, here on A Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Raslan. And because we're doing a series of specials where we're going a bit more in depth on our topics, I'm going to be talking to another professional historian. We've spoken to uh, Sumit Mandal, and now we're going to be speaking to one of his star students. She is Natusha Naidu. Hello, Natusha. Hi, thank you for having me, the star student. <laughs> you are. And I'll just tell our listeners. So Natusha is, uh, she, she graduated from University of Nottingham, Malaysia, as one of uh, Sumit Mandal's students. And she is now doing her master's in philosophy in world history at the University of Cambridge. She is, in fact, a Tunku Abdul Rahman scholar, which uh, is uh, uh, very prestigious and hard to get and it 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 comes from saint catherine's college in cambridge and uh natusha you're doing your masters and you are studying about patani um, yes, uh, let's let's just quickly fill in just in case anyone doesn't know where is patani okay so um, there are two ways to um, describe patani the first is being Patani, which is like two T's, P-A-T-T-A-N-I, which is a province in southern Thailand, and it borders with uh, Klantan, which is basically the east coast of uh, Peninsular Malaysia. And Patani, P-A-T-A-N-I, with one T, uh, denotes the four provinces in southern Thailand, which include um, one, Patani, uh, two, Naratiwat, three, Yala, and four, uh, Songkla. So these four provinces are predominantly uh, populated by Malay Muslims. And yeah, so that basically encompasses what we call Southern Thailand, and it's up north, bordering um, states like Kelantan. Um, and Perlis, as well as Kedah. And uh, which aspect of Patani history are you looking at? So I'm very interested in studying the history of Patani in the years between 1941 to 1957. So basically, what was going on in Patani during the uh, Pacific War and after the Pacific War and just in the lead up to um, Malaysia's uh, or Malaya's independence. Uh, I think we need to clarify this because uh, you are Natusha Naidu, which doesn't sound like a Patani name to me. <laughs> you're, you're Malaysian. Um, and yet you've chosen to, to look up Patani, uh, do you have any family connections? Is there any particular reason why you've chosen this topic? Uh, absolutely no connections. I think the closest connection that I have to the East Coast is that my grandmother was born in Kuala Krai and she grew up in Kuala Krai. But other than that, I have no affiliation to Patani Klantan whatsoever. However, uh, my interest does stem from the fact that um, I noticed that there's not a lot of scholarship on the modern political history of uh, Patani. 
And there's a lot of interesting things to learn about it because it has a lot to do with um, charting the history of Malaya as well. But surely there's, there is scholarship in Thai, or in Thailand at least, isn't there? Well, according to uh, a very well-known scholar named Tanit Apo Suban, um, he, he, he doesn't think that there is a lot of scholarship on the political writing of the 40s and 50s because um, there is an active um, censorship of this period uh, because it's considered very sensitive. So it's actually very difficult to get uh, archival access in Bangkok to find out about what was going on during this period. Okay, so what, uh, what have you found out about this period? And also, where have you found out about this period? So I started off charting my journey since my second year of my undergraduate. Um, I, had a, I had a really lovely um, uh, lecturer, scholar of uh, Thailand named Michael Connors. Um, and he basically allowed me and gave me the room to learn more about the history and politics of Southern Thailand. And during the course of our discussions, uh, one of the things that he brought up was the fact that um, there's not a lot written about kind of like a Malayan perspective of what was going on or relations with us, uh, Patani uh, during the periods uh, before uh, independence. And he thinks this is an important research gap to fill that no one's really interested in. Um, so consequently, I started off charting my journey to secondary um, research and of course uh, Tanit Apusuwan's uh, amazing uh, working paper produced by um, ISIS, uh, the uh, Yusuf Insha Institute in Singapore, where he discusses the origins of separatism in southern Thailand by tracing the turning point as uh, the Dusonyo Rebellion in 1948, uh, which was in nationalist histori historiography um, framed as a kind of a massacre. But um, in Thai historiography, it's uh, framed as basically uh, a rebellion against the Thai state and in need to uh, clamp it down. So um, he brings a lot of the, in his opinion, lopsided interpretations about how um, the notion of separatism is kind of something that's imposed on like the Malays of Patani rather than something that um, they wanted on their own. So there's a lot of like um, need to explore this concept to kind of understand how, what is this genealogy of what, or how like, you know, separatist groups have emerged uh, post-1960. Um, and, and the fact that very little is written about it, especially the cause of um, the development of Malay nationalism in this Siam Malaya frontier is kind of concerning because um, I feel we have a lot of gaps we don't we ha are yet to fill even in our own history of Malay nationalism. So, um, and by doing this, why this is really important, I think, is because um, we get to understand transnational solidarities at the border. But most importantly, it seems like political scientists uh, that work on Southern Thailand are very reliant on looking at this older history or pre-1960 history to make sense of why they're separatist groups. But in doing so, there's also a leapfrogging kind of legacy happening. So it's a revisionism of like the pre-modern to early modern history of Patani always being one of resistance towards the Thai state. 
but never so much about trying to recover the agency or complexities, especially the 1940s and 50s, um, and finding out what led up to, you know, basically armed uh, rebellion or whatever. Well, see, you, you were struggling there to think of what is the right way to call this? Is it an armed, armed rebellion or is it a freedom fight? What is it? And, and you know, hi- history is curated. It, it, it is, um, it's not a science. And you've been referring to, to histories that have been written by previous generations with their own perspectives. You do not necessarily have a stake in this. You're not Malay, you're not from Patani or even from Kelantan. And yet, are you finding yourself either one, being forced to take on a particular perspective, or are you imposing uh, your own p- perspective on this story? Well, thanks for bringing that up, because I do think that's something I do struggle with as a um, orang lua, as the <laughs> Kantanese and Patani people call it, uh, ore lua, and, you know, uh, not being... Malay, not being Muslim as well, puts me in a very interesting position, um, although I'm Malaysian. And um, it started off with, you know, I my entrance to the scholarship was from Thai studies and uh, English language scholarship on Southern Thailand. And when I moved into um, nationalist writing by Patani Malay scholars, then I realized there's this huge discrepancy, but not entirely, um, you know, something that cannot be remedied. So if you read a lot of the English language writing on how to interpret nationalist uh, writing of Patani in Malay, uh, it's usually framed as being angry, bitter, and not necessarily historically accurate. But uh, maybe because the fact that I come into this as a Malaysian and not having both sides. Um, I mean, not belonging to either one side. I read national historiography as more of a primary source because there's a lot of archival information that comes from periodicals and um, it's in the Malay periodicals that, you know, we often think like, think like about and um, say it's like the... Uh, the light of Malay journalism, you know what I mean? The 1930s and whatnot, that kind of discourse. And most importantly, um, oral history, which does not necessarily get um, covered in like the English language and Thai study scholarship. So I try to take these two things and try to merge them. And sure, there is a little bit of pressure. Like when I conducted my fieldwork in... Um, uh, Klantan, since I couldn't go to Patani due to the pandemic, um, one of the Patani uh, ustas that I met was telling me that, oh, at the end, at the conclusion of your dissertation, you should write that Patani should be Merdeka. And I was like, you know, I had to like laugh it off and just like, oh, you know, I, I need to stand in a neutral um, space when I write this. I have to write as objectively as I can, but I understand where the sentiments are coming from. and you know, building trust with a community as an outsider is also very challenging, you know. Um, uh, but it helped that uh, I, I tried to use empathy as the main driving force of my research work. And I think there are a lot of stories on the side of uh, Patani Malays, they're not being told. And 
I won't lie, I'm quite uh, sympathetic to uh, how much trauma they have gone through as a community. And I feel that my job is to actually to try to um, address that and interweave that with a more objective scholarship because I, I do believe that history should be the source of transformative justice. And there are a lot of things that are left unaddressed or unarticulated when it comes to the history of Patani in the 1940s and 50s. So um, to kind of like just turn things around or kind of shift the conversation a little bit on both sides, um, the main task of my uh, research is actually to frame the political uh, sources of political action in the 1940s and 50s as anti-colonial political action which is something that has not been done at all before um, in terms of the scholarship on Patani, which I think is strange, um, but it's quite suitable for the period. Um, and yeah, I could go on a little bit, but you've said a great many things, which, which, which I'd love to address. We don't have a huge amount of time. You said anti-colonial and um, you are at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, which is actually the same college that Tunku Abdurrahman attended, uh, hence the, the scholarship. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a really contentious time for history telling. Mm. And, mm. and in many ways, you're, you're kind of in the heart of uh, a, a kind of a front line in this. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. wondering, are you, do you, do you come under any pressure to, to tell a particular story? Or do you feel that you need to tell a particular story to, to butt heads or I mean yeah yeah I mean it's it's quite interesting to because when I began my research journey in the early days of uh, my MPhil um, I was doing this from the colonial metropole right um, Cambridge and this really archaic and imperialist institution <laughs> and obviously a lot of that bleeds into how we understand topics like this and um, I think because while I was there and, you know, mobility and whatnot, there was a lot of, uh, the expect expectation was to just write a history of Patani based on uh, the Malayan Security Services Intelligence reports. And for me, I was like, that's not enough. And um, it's also uh, quite, uh, goes against a lot of my principles about writing a decolonial scholarship. <laughs> to just like rely uh, on these documents and not have something else to corroborate with. And um, I was glad that I had a supervisor who also uh, agreed with me on this and felt that if I could extend my time and actually do some few work in uh, Malaysia to make sense of these uh, reports, that would be really good. Um, and yeah, in a way that's this, uh, there's a, this, low expectation to actually incorporate um, indigenous um, narratives on history um, because the colonial document is uh, put on a pedestal of being like historical fact when it's not necessarily true and more so with intelligence reports. Um, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was quite, yeah. I've, I've read uh, intelligence reports myself uh, fr mm. from uh, the British police in uh, India and, mm. and it is when they give a report, it is swallowed by the contemporary uh, authorities as being absolutely sacrosanct. And yet I knew it was rubbish. <laughs> mm. 
and it was really shocking actually for me because I too had grown up thinking, okay, certain sources are completely believable. Mm. But then you discover, actually, no, I mean, this whole police work thing is just, it's just rubbish. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's difficult, you know, because um, uh, as uh, you probably noticed, I, I don't know if you've looked at the Malayan Security Services Journals, but um, they have a ranking of how um, accurate the reports might be. And something that we don't actually really uh, address in a lot of our scholarship is, uh, which I found, I found interesting then when I was researching on Patani was even like there's a lot of discourse or a lot of um, arguments between uh, colonial administrators about the accuracy of these reports. Right. And a lot of infighting about, you know, between the colonial metropole, the colonial office in London, and then um, the state uh, governments like in Kelantan or Kedah or Perlis, you know, about what was going on in southern Thailand and uh, how to approach the matter. There's a lot of distance mm. uh, in the recordation of uh, intelligence or accumulating like what's going on, political activities, right? So that's interesting. And also the fact that I, I think I always found was they all seem to hate each other. Oh, yeah, they do <laughs> a lot. They hate each other a and, lot. And, and when you find that human emotion, you kind of realize that these are written by humans. And yes, exactly. they're ambitious humans, which brings me to my final question because we're running out of time. <coughs> the word agency. You said agency earlier, mm, um, mm. which I think is something that, that people don't think about. But I'm wondering if you could, if you could uh, expand a little on what you mean by bringing agency to history telling? So a lot of times it looks like the history, national, nationalist historiography written by um, people like Abdul Razak Mahmoud, who used to go by the pseudonym Ahmad Fatih Al-Fatani, and Zamri Malik, um, Klantani scholars like the late Nick Anwar, Nick Mahmoud, um, you know, Ismail Ben... Uh, Benjamin, these are all really well-known um, scholars of uh, Patani in the Malay language. And one of the things that um, English language scholars like to say about these writings are that it's very um, helpless. There's no agency. And political scientists also tend to write and reproduce this idea that um, the history is written in a way that, you know, they are a bunch of helpless people constantly being tortured by the Thai kingdom, you know? Um, this idea of uh, being a tributary and continued reproduced like political relations as a subordinate, subordinate um, to a very oppressive uh, ruler uh, continues. And I feel that the 40s and 50s is an interesting period where um, that doesn't necessarily apply because you have... Um, Anti overtly anti-colonial um, figures like um, the late Kalantani prince uh, Tengku Mahmud Mayudin and um, Tengku Abdul Jalal, who is also a, um, so a, a prince of uh, Saiburi. And um, you have um, many others, in fact, or even at the Kalantani front, you know, Ustaz Abu Bakar al-Bakir and um, people like... Um, um, and I mean, just so many people, you know what I mean, who are basically mm. taking an active effort to try to uh, liberate, uh, or of course, most importantly, Haji Sulong bin Abdul Qadir, 
um, these are people who were really important and central figures in not just historical memory, but also actively trying to address injustice taking place at the border. You know what I mean? So, but, but, but also elevating then uh, the discourse from, from just pure victimhood to, um, to uh, proactive choices being made, even if the choice is to yes. retreat. Yeah. Um, but Natusha, though, we're, we're absolutely running out of time, though, and uh, I, I could talk about Patani. There are so many things that I've done. And um, I want to ask, though, one final question, uh, which I asked <laughs> sure, earlier sure. and which we always ask on A Bit of Culture, which is a recommendation. Could you recommend something to our listeners uh, that um, you think they should uh, know or do? Okay, so I really think that this book, even though it's in Malay, but I hope after I finish my MPhil, I can get it translated to English. Um, it's called Harimau Malaya, Biography Tengku Mahmud Mayudin. Um, it's written by uh, uh, Muhammad Zambri A. Malik, who is a Patani Malay historian. And it tells this rather complete picture of um, the history of Patani in the 1940s and 50s through um, the um, perspective of um, Tengku Mahmud, who I feel is a national hero that has been forgotten in the history of uh, Malaysia. He was truly a man ahead of his time, and um, I, wish that, I wish that more people knew about him. <laughs> All right. Well, you, you said the word hero, which uh, historians don't use these days, uh, Natusha. I thought, <laughs> I thought Sumit would have taught that one out of you. Uh, <laughs> no, anyway, he didn't. He didn't. I mean, but public uh, history, you know, in terms <laughs> of public history, Superman history, I guess. Um, but, you know, just an important figure in uh, uh, okay, nation yeah. building. So I think... Uh, nation building. That's another term we don't use. <laughs> <laughs> this must be all my political scientists, yeah. like remnants, you know. Dots didn't beat the whole Paul science out of me, so. <laughs> yes, and, and also it's your, your Malaysian education. It's all, all that secondary school and everything. It's all coming out now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, I want to uh, thank you so much for joining us, Natusha, and really good luck with your, um, your thesis. When, when, how much longer do you have to write? Um, well, I'm supposed to end... Uh, submit by end of November, so... Oh, wow. So, yeah, really yeah. stressful period right now. Okay, well, well thanks for, for taking the time to speak to me. And, um, well, thank you, Natusha Naidu, and, uh, and also earlier to uh, Sumit K. Mandal. And uh, later, another time, we'll be doing another more in-depth um, conversations. I want to do stand-up comedy next time. So, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so uh, thank you, and please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.